That's something I was trying to show you from the Gospel according to St Luke, that Luke was trying to do two things with us. One was that he was trying to give us undeniable proof of who Jesus is. Listen to his words. Luke chapter 1. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. So that you may know the certainty of the things you've been taught. Luke has investigated eyewitnesses, people who were around who could read this and verify it. And when the church got together to decide what was scripture and what wasn't, they included this because they believed this to be accurate. And it's written to Theophilus, it says. Theophilus, Theos is God, Philos is a follower, devotee, something like that. So it's, it could be a person, but equally it could be you and me. It could be everybody who's going to read this, the followers of God. Something that we can trust Something we can believe in, this story written by Luke. The second thing he wanted to do was he wanted to reveal to us what God is like. Because Jesus said these words. He said in Luke 10, 21 to 23, I praise you, Father, because you've hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. No one knows who the Son is except the Father. And no one knows who the Father is except the Son. And those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Then he said to his disciples, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. So he's saying to them, You've seen this. So you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And blessed are the eyes that see what you see. This is the purpose of Luke's Gospel. That we can see what they see. We see the same Jesus revealing God the Father. We're blessed. Now, last week I was sharing with you that when Luke starts to tell the story of Jesus, he starts with this thin end of this funnel and he starts by describing Jesus in the Old Testament prophecies, uh, this birth of John the Baptist, the temple, uh, Jerusalem, Bethlehem, the city of David. It's Everything is mainstream and central to Judaism, to the Hebrew tradition, to the history of Israel, the Old Testament. They're all in the middle of that. And when Jesus turns 30, the story begins to widen. And the purpose is that Jesus is revealing to his followers, to the people around him, to the crowds, what God is like. But it's not something freaky or out on the edges. It's mainstream. This comes out of the heart of everything they have known before. Now, the other incredible thing about Luke's gospel and Luke's writing is that he's the only one who writes a sequel. So he writes a second volume. It's called The Acts of the Apostles. And it's what we'd like to show you who it's about. Acts chapter 1. I'm going to read you a few wee snippets from the first eight verses. Acts chapter 1, in my former book, Theophilus, this is written again to whoever this follower of God was or is, you and me. 
In my former book, People of Beaver, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven. On one occasion while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait. Wait. Wait for the gift my Father promised. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on, comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, Samaria and the ends of the earth. Now if you remember nothing else, remember Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. And Samaria is full of Samaritans. Wow. Two things worth noting here. Luke has taken us back to the narrow end of the funnel and it's deliberate. It's like the pattern of the gospel is being repeated for as the pattern of the followers of the gospel. The new movement, just like Jesus, will emerge from the centre of all things Hebrew, Jewish, Old Testament, Jerusalem, their tradition, their history. This is the main course. This isn't something flaky or fringy or out on the edges. It's the heart of the thing. But it is the original thing, renewed and set on fire by the power of the Holy Spirit. How much does the Church of Ireland need that? That the thing we've carried for centuries could be set on fire afresh across this nation. Jesus tells them to wait in Jerusalem, but he tells them it begins in Jerusalem, but it can't be contained there. It's like himself. It starts central, but it can't be contained there. It's going to go to Judea, Samaria, full of all those Samaritans, and then to the ends of the earth. And you know what? People in the first century probably didn't even know what the ends of the earth meant. They certainly couldn't Google it, see what it looked like. So, quick snippet of the beginning of Acts of the Apostles. Chapter 1, the disciples are in prayer in the upper room in Jerusalem. Chapter 2, the Holy Spirit falls on them in Jerusalem, Pentecost. They spill into the streets of Jerusalem to talk about Jesus. But numbers grew. Chapter 3, healings and miracles all over Jerusalem and numbers grew. Chapter 4, opposition from the authorities in Jerusalem, but the numbers grew. Chapter 4, some of the apostles are persecuted and punished, but the numbers grew. Chapter 6, so beginning of a wee tension. Greek-speaking Jews, Hebrew-speaking Jews. There's a food distribution in Jerusalem, but the widows of the Greek-speaking Jews seem to get left out. So they get together to solve it. Oh, it's so important. They get together to solve it. They elect seven new leaders who are Greek-speaking Jews. And this problem is solved, and then numbers grew. Chapter 7. Stephen, one of this new group of leaders, a Greek-speaking Jew, uh, is accused by the authorities of subverting the Old Testament. He's tried, then dragged out in the street and stoned to death. The end of chapter 7 we read of the followers of this new movement grabbing their belongings and literally running for their lives into the hills. This new movement in Jerusalem is suddenly dispersed and scattered. In Acts chapter 8, we catch up with them. 
and they've got as far as Samaria. But here's a wonderful thing. Not only did they grab what they needed in terms of their belongings when they scattered and ran for the hills, but they grabbed hold of their experience of Jesus, their memories of Jesus, their experience of being filled with the Holy Spirit. They grabbed hold of this as well. They didn't leave that behind in Jerusalem. They took that with them. And when they got to Samaria, they shared it. To the point where we read in the first half of Acts chapter 8 that something like a revival has broken out in Samaria, except we can't call it a revival because there wasn't anything to revive. It has to be a revival. But something new has broken out among them. So much so. And they, they're very concerned that this thing, this new movement stays together. So they send, the, the original 12 have stayed in Jerusalem for whatever reason. So they send for Peter and John and they travel down to Samaria. The last place on earth probably they want to be. They come to Samaria, they lay, lay hands on these new followers of Jesus, these new members of the movement. They're filled with the Holy Spirit. And Hebrew-speaking Jews, Greek-speaking Jews, and now Samaritans, it's one movement. The movement of Christ is sticking together. Next thing we read is uh, the road to Ethiopia. Again, one of these Greek-speaking leaders finds himself, Philip, finds himself uh, on the road to Ethiopia. Not because he's going to Ethiopia, but because someone is there who is. He's an Ethiopian. Now, if you want to send the gospel to the ends of the earth... Uh, rather than taking it yourself, why not pass it on to someone who's already on his way there? Uh, interestingly, in um, some ancient Greek uh, historical writings, Ethiopia is described as the ends of the earth. Wow. Anyway, uh, this Ethiopian, he's a member of the Ethiopian government. Uh, he's reading about Isaiah, but doesn't understand any of it. James explains to him the scriptures uh, about the Messiah in Isaiah. Uh, and he embraces the idea, faith. He says, any reason why I shouldn't be baptised? There's a pause. Because there is a reason. He's an Ethiopian, he's a Gentile, and he's a eunuch. And according to the Old Testament law, specifically Deuteronomy 23, he's not allowed to enter the courts of the temple. He's not allowed to be part of the family of God. What's Philip going to do? <laughs> he says, I can't see any reason why you shouldn't be baptised. <laughs> and he's baptised and the new movement crosses some new cultural boundaries and is on its way to Africa. Oh, isn't that just so? How clever is God? Next thing we read, Acts 10. Peter has had a dream about all sorts of unclean foods in a blanket. Everything as he embraces the idea, he ends up in the home of a Roman centurion. Uh, he's crossing all sorts of cultural, uh, no, shouldn't be there, shouldn't be doing that. Not only is a Gentile, he's part of the military of the occupying forces of the empire. Anyway, Peter's there. He's been told by God to go. So he goes. Uh, he's sharing with them about Jesus. And when he starts talking about Jesus, uh, Peter describes it as the Holy Spirit fell on them in the same way the Holy Spirit fell on us. In the upper room in Jerusalem, they become part of the new movement and all of them are baptised. Wow. So 
someone wrote this as Peter is beyond the usual and beyond the acceptable. Acts 13, uh, Gentiles have started to respond to the gospel in large numbers. In Acts 14, Luke describes it as God had opened a door of faith for the Gentiles. Uh, but at the beginning of Acts 15, Paul and Barnabas are the preachers of this gospel that is being accepted by the Gentiles. And we're told in Acts 15, in those first five verses of Acts 15, that some teachers from Judea come down to sort out these new Gentiles to tell them they must be circumcised and must adhere to the law of the Old Testament. This puts them in conflict with Paul and Barnabas and the whole lot end up going down to Jerusalem uh, to meet with the apostles and the elders and they have what we would call a, uh, a conference, a synod, a debate. And we don't know how long it goes on for but there are testimonies, stories. Uh, the debate goes backwards and forwards. Scripture is used. And, and then James, who's now leading the church after listening to all of this, comes to a conclusion. And his conclusion is that if you're Jewish, that's your background, and circumcision in the law is part of your culture and your faith, when you come to putting your faith in Christ, circumcision in the law is perfectly acceptable as part of that. If you're from the Gentile side, and you don't know what the law is, you're certainly not going to be circumcised, but you put your faith in Christ, then you're also part of it. Wow. Do you see another huge division has become another huge unity. It's incredible. What a story. This goes on and on. It's wonderful. I'd like to finish by making three quick statements. One, these people that Jesus described as you're blessed because you've seen this way back in Luke chapter 10. The Theophiluses of the Gospel. They were faithful to it. Right? What they saw in Jesus, they did themselves. They just did it like he did it. Secondly, they faced the challenges. There were significant difficulties. The practical problems like the food in Jerusalem. The theological problems and debates over circumcision and over Gentiles. The conflicts with, um, with their culture and with their past and their background and their tradition, like with the Roman centurion, uh, like with Lydia. How could a woman be at the heart of this new church? Right? They faced all of those things and they pressed through them. They stuck together. This, it was going to be centuries before this church started to splinter into all sorts of things. The third thing, and this is Luke. Luke very, and I believe this to be intentional of Luke, and if you read it verse by verse, you will see this. Every time there is a fresh movement, it is either described as the initiative of God or afterwards is confirmed by God. John Stott, um, significant teacher and writer, of the 20th century said, perhaps this book should not be called the Acts of the Apostles, but should be called the Acts of the Holy Spirit. And we are the Theophiluses of the Acts of the Holy Spirit. We've read it, we've seen it, 
Now we have to figure out how we live it. What does this mean? 20 centuries later in Belfast or Lisburn or Antrim or County Down or County Antrim or wherever we're from. What does this mean? I'd like to pray. Then we're going to sing two songs. So, Father God, thank you for opening your arms to welcome us at the ends of the earth into your family. Son of God, God the Son, thank you for dying on the cross for us, for setting us free from our sin, taking away all the separation and allowing us to be part of you, part of your life. God the Holy Spirit, thank you for filling us. Equip us and send us.